Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. Season 2 provides more episodes and features a wider variety of professions. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. This week I am privileged to be speaking with Dr. Eddie Miller. He is an obstetrician and gynecologist who specializes in maternal fetal medicine. He currently practices at the University of Louisville, and he serves also as the chief diversity officer there. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So as an obstetrician and one that does maternal fetal medicine or MFM, what's a typical day like for you? So... You know, what drew me to MFM is that every day is is far from typical. So uh, I can use this week as an example. So this week, I am the attending physician on service. So my day starts around uh, 6.30. I get to the hospital, and I'll have anywhere from 6 to 12 antepartum patients. So patients that are hospitalized for a variety of reasons, whether they be maternal or they may have a sick um, baby. And I finish rounds, rounds take from about 7 o'clock to 11 o'clock, and then I go to my clinic. And in my clinic, I'll have a full schedule of either ultrasound or inpatient consults. During ultrasound, as a maternal fetal medicine doctor, I read the ultrasounds for every pregnant patient at the University of Louisville. So um, I read the ultrasounds, determine if everything looks normal, if there's something concerning, if they possibly need procedures or invasive genetic diagnosis. And I also do consults. So if somebody has an anomaly or somebody has a maternal condition, I counsel them on the effect that that condition will have on either their baby, their pregnancy, or both. And then ultimately try to get both mom, baby, and family through their pregnancy safely. So it's busy, but it's wonderful. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Wow. And some of the procedures that you get involved with, you do any uh, exit procedures? Yeah. So we do quite a few. So as maternal fetal medicine, you kind of can, what's cool about it is you can kind of develop your niche. So I do a lot of uh, invasive uh, prenatal diagnosis procedures. So amniocentesis, um, CVS or chorionic villi sampling, which allows us to get genetic diagnosis of the babies while they're still inside the utero. And I've just recently expanded and started doing um, periumbilical blood sampling. So we do this in babies that have certain conditions where they become anemic. So we can actually um, get blood out of the baby's umbilical cord while they're still in utero. And then um, based on their anemia, transfuse them blood back through their umbilical cord and allow them to mature inside the mom and get to a later gestation Whoa, whoa hang, hang on. So the baby's in the... In the... It's and, cool. Yeah, you got to break this down. I'm just a, a simple uh, anesthesiologist. Explain this to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, you know, ultrasound is our best friend. So we use ultrasound and we map the placenta. We map the vessels inside the placenta. And using ultrasound and then the complete ultrasound guidance, we guide our needle and we enter the umbilical vein. And once we've gotten into the umbilical vein, we actually hook up our machinery, and we take blood out of the umbilical vein, which actually is fetal blood, and allows us to determine just how significant the anemia is. Um, And then based on that, we try to transfuse enough donor blood, which is adult blood, back to the baby so that their hemoglobin or hematocrit goes up to a safe range that allows them to stay in utero and stay safe. Um, it's It's pretty incredible. These babies before would, you know, pass away in a matter of weeks if they didn't transfuse. And now we can do procedure, you know, every two weeks or so and keep them inside for months longer. 
Wow, that's uh, pretty incredible. It's pretty cool. And then, of course, we do, you know, all of the, the big hysterectomies or cesarean sections, cesarean hysterectomies, um, exits, as you mentioned, and things like that as well. Yeah, explain that uh, exit procedure. I've been t- participated in two. It's been a while. Yes, this is this is when we get to come together. Exactly. <laughs> so we get, um, they're, they're rare to begin with, but there are certain conditions that um, when there's a concern that the fetus may have problems breathing or transitioning from life inside the womb to outside the womb. So there are certain masses that can develop in pregnancy that can compress the um, fetal airway. There can be problems with a baby that has congenital diaphragmatic hernia where the lungs are very hypoplastic and they're fearful that the lungs may not be able to work well right away. So we actually, you know, the placenta and the umbilical cord is basically the lifeline to the baby. Mm-hmm. So we deliver the baby and we keep the placenta and the umbilical cord attached. So that placenta and umbilical cord are still breathing for that baby. And as long as that's attached, we then have our pediatric ENT colleagues or, you know, we've even done some of our pediatric anesthesia colleagues <laughs> and they intubate the baby while they're still attached. That allows us to make sure that the baby has an adequate airway outside of the uterus. And then once the baby has a confirmed airway, we cut the umbilical cord, deliver the baby, and hand the baby off safely. And then we get them to, you know, the pediatric cardiologist, the pediatric CT surgeon, whoever it is. A lot of MFM is about getting babies that would otherwise not survive in utero to a late enough gestational age where we can get them to a specialist where they can have definitive management and the best outcome. That's um, incredible because I'm sure your field has grown considerably in probably the last 15 to 20 years. And like you said, a lot of a lot of kids that wouldn't make it are um, making it to term and surviving and thriving. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's what drew me to MSM. I think maternal fetal medicine is growing faster than any other specialty. I mean, what I do is just literally the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we are literally fixing spina bifidas in utero. We're taking babies out of the uterus, fixing an open spinal defect, putting them back in, filling the uterus back up with water, and these babies are staying inside for months longer. I mean, it's it's incredible. <laughs> mind-blowing. It's absolutely incredible. It's mind-blowing. It really, really is. And a lot of it is just, you know, the, the, the fact that we can do it and the trust that patients put in on us is just, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. So in addition to your clinical duties, you're at an academic medical center. So I assume you're involved in resident and medical student education. Can you talk about that aspect of your job? Yeah. So that's, you know, probably the, you know, the favorite part of my job. Uh, we got to work together at Howard and, um, you know, the medical students and the resident, that education was always my biggest passion. So as part of my role, I'm the residency uh, research director. So I kind of guide and mentor all of our residents through their resident research projects and then also maintain my own research portfolio. Um, and teaching happens every day. So I have residents that rotate with me on the antepartum service that I'm teaching directly every day. I have weekly lectures that I give. Um, to the medical students or residents. And then there's also just, you know, the best times for kind of education and learning. You know, I do a lot of, of public speaking, a lot of, um, you know, guest lecturing and things like that, grand rounds. And it, it's the best time to just, you know, develop a passion, develop an area and just kind of talk about it and get people interested in what you do and, and in medicine in general. Big responsibility, but the excitement that you have for the field, I'm sure, has definitely steered plenty of students into this area of medicine. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, you have to love what you do, right? Like, if you don't love it, you shouldn't do it. You you go to school for too long, 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> way too long. Speaking of school, so way too long. so what was your pathway? Because I know you you trained at Howard for residency and UCSF, mm-hmm. but before that, you know, when did you decide to go into medicine? Yeah, so I was definitely a late bloomer. So I was um, I was born in Compton and was raised kind of um, in the foster care system. So I was always a kid, you know, and I, I think there's so many kids like this out there that, you know, I never thought I was smart, but I knew I wasn't dumb. And there's this in-between where you you recognize that you could do things, but you just have never seen it happen. So you never can kind of imagine yourself going to college, moving away, and doing all of that stuff. Yeah. And I had a lot of social workers in my life that would just basically say, you know, after high school, you need to get a job. You can go to community college. And, you know, if you, if you want to be a doctor, cool. But, like, you need to have a job because you're not going to have housing after this. Um, so, you know, I learned through my past that, you know, dreams are really set by your reality sometimes for a lot of kids. And that's, that's you know, one of my big passions now is that we should be dreaming as big as we can. So I went to junior college for two years. And really there learned how to learned how to study and learned how to say, like, if you want to do this, there is one way. There is no substitute for hard work. If you want to make this work, you have to put the hours in. Um, And I decided to put the hours in and it was step by step. I was in junior college for two years. I transferred to NYU at NYU. They said, you came from junior college. You can't be pre-med. And I was like, watch (laughs) this. Was it NYU for three years? Um, Went to Wake Forest for medical school. Um, And medical school was, uh, was the best and the worst time for me. Um, because I learned if you were, if you just decided that this was going to happen, you could make anything happen. But as far as environment goes, medical school was tough. Um, and medical school really, I finished medical school really not sure if I had made the right decision, but Howard turned all that around and confirmed every decision that I made and taught me, you know, it was the first time I got to learn in an environment where everyone looked like me and really really believed that people wanted me to do well and wanted me to excel. And Howard was put up or shut up time. Howard was, how good can you be? And after Howard, um, I went to Howard and I decided that I was going to see how good I could be. And then I knew I wanted to do maternal fetal medicine. So I did fellowship at um, UCSF um, and was there for three years. And that was life changing as well. Um, I got to train at one of the best institutions in the country with some of, you know, people that wrote the books that I read in residency and things like that. And I get to call them colleagues now. And um, (laughs) now my goal is to do that for other people that want to come up along that way. Yeah. Let me ask you this. And so when you're at Wake Forest, can you talk a little bit about the difficulties you experienced? Because I know for a lot of students of color, you know, you get into medical school wherever you get in. And you may not have the luxury or the benefit of training at Howard or Meharry or uh, Morehouse. What would you say to those students, kind of based on your experience, that are training at um, predominantly white institutions? What helped you get through? So I think looking back, because it was it was rough. Um, looking back, I think that being that environment, being the there was myself and one other black male in my class of about 144. Um, and there was about four black women. So there were six of us (laughs) and, you know, rather than, rather than create kind of a collegial kind of environment, there was this 
this feeling of competition amongst everyone, amongst each other, um, and just this this overwhelming imposter syndrome that developed within me, um, commenting on the way that you speak, the way that you dress. Um, and I guess my advice would be sometimes being the only black student at a PWI or one of few black students at PWI, your goal or your priorities are to blend in as much as you can, because it's hard to blend in because you stand out so much Mm -hmm. and that keeps you from vocalizing when you need help, when you're struggling. And you have to remember that those four years are so temporary and they are four years in a 30 year long career, if not longer, but they set you up for everything else that you're going to do. So if you need something, you are paying a whole lot of money (laughs) for that education. So you sure as hell better say, hang on, I need this, or hang on, I'm struggling here. Because the only person that loses is you. Yeah. They're going not going to care at the end of the day, and, but it's hard to do. So identify when you're struggling, ask for help, and then find people that make you feel safe and hold on to them. That's good. That's some good stuff. I can I can even use that in my current current career. <laughs> Um, Me too, man. Me too. <laughs> so then, you know, you get to Howard University Hospital, D.C., Chocolate City, the Mecca. Man. <laughs> man. How was that transition? <laughs> it was, so, you know, growing up in California, it, it was one of the first times that, you know, I went to college in New York, but growing up in California, I had not ever considered going to an HBC because there's not much on the West Coast. Um, so, which, you know, is, is definitely regional and has a long history. Um, so going to Howard, it was so new. It was so wonderful. And there were so many things that I saw that I loved about Howard. I loved the mission of Howard University Hospital the moment that I got there. I loved the dedication to this patient population. I loved that we were the best I mean, it was family. It was just family. And I got, I got what HBCUs and what Howard in particular was attempting to cultivate. Um, we've graduated more doctors. We've graduated more nurses. And the quality of doctors that we graduate is, is some of the best in the country. I mean, it was definitely a culture shock for me. Um, I know that you haven't gone to Howard. I mean, I can tell you the very first time I was there how many times I – you know, got yelled at by cardiology attendants or got yelled at by the sandwich lady in the cafeteria who was the meanest lady I've ever met, but I also yeah. loved her. I mean, it was an experience. It was an experience, but that's, that's the med- that's the doctor I knew I wanted to be. I mean, I'm one day I will be going back to Howard. I will be the Dean of Howard university hospital of Howard university school of medicine. Um, was that the, the Shaquille O'Neal sandwich shop they had? Those were the worst sandwiches. I dare you to change your order. I dare you to change your order. I dare you. Can I go? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to fall out of turkey. She will give you a look and just throw the sandwich on the floor. And then she's like, I need a minute. Oh, my God. Because, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, talk about his businesses, right? He owns wing stops and all this. I'm like, they don't talk about that at a uh, sandwich shop. They don't talk about that sandwich shop at all. The bread was good, though. That bread was good. And then we had Wing Wednesday with a cornbread cake. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> You can't get that everywhere. You can't. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I remember you showing up, though, because you exuded this energy and this passion. Like, you were so happy. Like, I'm like, this dude's starting intern year 
an OBGYN, how is he so energetic and happy? And you kept saying, I want to be the dean. I'm going to, and you were, you're shooting for these uh, high academic positions. And I'm like, how does, you know, how does he have his presence of mind to, to shoot for this? Yet, several years down the road, here you are at University of Louisville, you're the chief diversity officer. How did you get into that role? How did you transition? How did you even know that that's what you wanted to do as an intern? So, you know, I think as an, as an intern, you know, a couple months into Howard, I, I had this epiphany that like, this is what medicine can be. And like, it is possible to have fun and take great care of patients and, and learn a whole lot and be happy. I didn't believe that after graduating medical school, <laughs> I thought that medicine was supposed to make you miserable. Like literally I was like, I just, I just want to survive. Um, and Howard changed that. And, you know, training at other institutions and seeing the way that other people did things. I was like, we can make like, we can make medicine this everywhere. Hmm. Um, and that's always been my goal. Um, so, you know, as, as I've, I've always been somebody who has lofty goals and I think Howard also taught me to goal set. So I said to myself, you know, I want to match in the best fellowship program in the country so that I will be able or be in a position to do the best research that I can to get the best job that I can out of fellowship. Um, and Howard did that. And then in fellowship, it was a matter of finding my clinical area of interest, writing in it, publishing in it, um, speaking on it, um, being present, and just being a constant advocate. Um, I think that, you know, there's there's so much work that's done in diversity that's not done by people who are affected by it. Hmm. And that was always problematic for me. Um, so I wanted to be the person that spoke on it and that held leaders accountable and that created the change that we need in our in our institutions, both locally and nationally. Um, and most importantly, you know, when I when I finished fellowship, I thought I would be, you know, staying at UCSF or you know Northwestern or Chicago. But I recognized as I was leaving and looking for jobs that, much like my draw to Howard, I want to be the kind of doctor or leader that serves the communities that need it the most, and that's what drew me here. And I signed my contract, and shortly thereafter, um, the Breonna Taylor murder happened. And I've never felt more drawn or felt more like I was supposed to be in a place than I do at Louisville right now, doing the work that I'm doing right now. Wow. And a lot of it is luck. (laughs) (laughs) Real talk. Real talk. Real talk. I ask myself that same question. (laughs) I'm like, when did you finish fellowship? Oh yeah, four months ago. <laughs> oh gosh, well that's incredible, and that you're able to affect change at that that high level. What are your responsibilities, or, or what initiatives do you have um, as the dean of uh, or the, the wow. chief diversity officer? So it is um, my job is very broad. So I'll be very transparent. This is uh, as I think we all know, those of us that are are you know, underrepresented in medicine know a lot of initiatives about around diversity are reactionary. And I'd be lying if I said that the decision, you know, around Brianna and everything that was happening in Louisville, the creation of my position and positions like mine weren't reactionary. My job is to make them permanent and to hold leadership accountable. So through the University of Louisville, I've worked along with our president and our dean to create an anti-racist um, curriculum that touches all aspects of the university. So in our curriculum, we now are developing a course about the history of racism within all of the specialties that we're doing. So in OBGYN, for example, there's a huge history mm-hmm. of 
you know, racism, sexism, uh, experiments against slaves, you know, just anything you can name. Henrietta Lacks, you know what I mean? Yeah. Anything you can name has affected people of color, but we don't learn about these in our books. So my job is to not only develop the curriculum and work with the School of Medicine, but also think about how my job is for the entire University of Louisville Health. So think about how race affects every single person, whether they be medical students, residents, um, you know, janitors, cafeteria workers, how race and how our policies are affecting all of them. Um, so it's overwhelming. And a large part of my job centers around community engagement. So how can we get University of Louisville out into the community that we're serving? Um, and I've been very, very clear that if you want to lead and if you want to affect change, you have to put money and time behind it. Um, so my job is about holding our leadership accountable, holding our president accountable, having organizations come to say, we want U of L to do this and saying, absolutely. And then come going to the president and saying, this is what we need to be doing and getting money and funding and time and effort. And it's, it's pretty, it's, it's been very rewarding. It's overwhelmingly busy when you think about how much work <laughs> there is to do, but yeah, it's, it's crazy, but it's, it's been very rewarding thus far. Yeah. When it comes to community engagement, I mean, how incredible is it when you're interacting with patients that look like you? I mean, I know they hear on the news, the increased morbidity mortality with black women who are giving birth. So what is that mean to your patients when they come to the exam room or they come to the delivery room and see you? It is everything. And, you know, I, I make it, I make it, um, I make it a point to wear when I wear my white coat and I have a patient who is African American or Latina or anyone really, I make it a point to sit down um, and look them in the eye and basically just have a moment. I think that, you know, when we think about pregnancy, especially with black women, there's so much in the news right now about how dangerous it is for them. A lot of my patients don't feel like women that should be happy about their pregnancies. They feel so stressed, so scared, yeah. so nervous about this process that is so normal. Now, yes, horrible things can happen during pregnancy, but my job is to get you through it safely, but most importantly, to get you to enjoy your pregnancy. That is so important because some of these women that I get, they only get one. Yeah. You know, They may have a situation where they need a hysterectomy or it's not safe for them. They may only get one. Um, so pregnancy, you know, history with black women and their bodies. We have traumatized them. We have victimized them. And it's an amazing thing to be able to take the best care of black women and maybe just give them a little bit back um, and just change it, you know, just for their generation. And it's the best feeling in the world where, you know, they say, Mr. Miller, um, can I come back and see you? It's the absolute best feeling. Yeah. They usually don't think I'm their doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, geez. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're the backbone of our society, and, and they definitely uh, did their thing with this most recent election. So for that, we are eternally grateful. Man, if they save us one more time, <laughs> I don't even know what to do. I don't even know what to do. We need to start a GoFundMe for black folks so we can send them all on vacation for like, just like a just like a big old trip. I don't even know where we could send them. Oh, man. So, can't ignore it. It's in the news. COVID-19. COVID-19 and pregnancy, what would you say to patients, kind of just in a broad general sense, that are concerned about this virus and uh, being pregnant? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that their concern is um, is legitimate, but you have to preface it by what we know about COVID-19 and pregnancy. And if 
changed dramatically over a very short amount of time. You know, when COVID hit, you know, back in, you know, late February and March, it hit New York first. And a lot of what we knew came out of the bigger centers in New York, Columbia and Mount Sinai. And we were told that it was terrifying and that women died and they had horrible complications. And that if, you know, with COVID, like you went to the hospital, you couldn't have any visitors. It was just you alone. And that kind of prefaced the fear that a lot of women have. Um, Much like the adult non-pregnant population, the important thing is that you have to be careful. You have to recognize that you need to be wearing your mask. You need to socially distance yourself at all times. Hand hygiene is very, very important. But as far as um, there are some certain physiologic differences among women in pregnancy, so respiratory illnesses in pregnancy oftentimes are more severe because of the growing pregnancy and the physiologic differences. But for the most part, um, I've taken care of quite a few women with COVID during pregnancy, and their outcomes are very similar to the general population. They do require closer watching because they are pregnant. They are caring for two. Um, but with that close, you know, close follow-up with the provider, I think that, you know, it's the same kind of management or treatment as a, as a non-pregnant population. Good, good. I'm sure uh, folks would be relieved to, to hear that. So, Dr. Miller, um, if I could label you with one word, that word would probably be intentional. That's kind of what I've seen from the the time that I knew you. I knew you briefly when I was still at Howard. But following your career, you set these attainable goals, these lofty yet attainable goals, and you execute. And you're just very intentional about everything that you do and that you've done thus far and to that end, you are working with that community engagement aspect and you're working with the Black OBGYN project. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the Black OBGYN project is, I think, one of the best examples I've seen of Black excellence by two young female physicians who had an idea, a passion, and are making an impact. So it is a Instagram page, Facebook group, soon to be a um, a backed organization, um, nonprofit, that effort is to give information about all things related to public health for black women. This comes from doctors, from public health experts, from lawyers, um, from just a really, really wide variety of experts, and also gives opportunities for people from across all levels, whether they be medical students, college students, the opportunity to come together and speak with experts and individuals in certain areas that they may be interested, may have questions in, um, and have a dialogue. And it also gives an opportunity for patients to come in and take part in these conversations and gives doctors, nurses a chance to speak with our patients and find out what medicine is doing well, what medicine is not doing well. Um, they have this really fantastic new curriculum that I'm working on them with that is a month-long um, lecture series on a variety of topics, such as the history of racism in medicine, um, the experience of blackness or for BIPOC students in medical school. Um, as we get closer to applying to medical school, there's going to be fantastic opportunities for up, you know rising college students that are applying to speak with admissions counselors or people that are sit on admissions committees and things like that. So it's really just a, a fantastic organization that is doing great service, putting on great work that I'm really, really happy to be a part of. 
That's awesome. And you said that you can find them online, the Black OBGYN Project. That's their Instagram and Facebook pages? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. We'll stay tuned for for more to come, and we'll send their their link um, and all the promotions materials. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for coming on the show. What would you, you like to leave our listeners with? You know, I I would say that um, for, for those that have finished Thank you for all the work you've done. Thank you for being an inspiration. Thank you for leading and continue to do so. And for those that are in residency, medical school, or up and coming, remember that all of this work you're putting in, all the hardship you're going through is temporary. And on the other side, it is worth it. I promise it is worth it. Um, so just keep going. And remember that you're not in this alone. Reach out to anyone that makes you feel comfortable you can message me anything like that because our job as those that have gone through it is to get you through it safely intact and feeling like you want to still make a difference and be the doctor that you dream of absolutely and how can they uh get a hold of you and follow your career absolutely so my instagram is hudocbyday howard you get it still there <laughs> <laughs> or you can hit me up uh, on facebook at my u of l it's uh edward miller md uh my u of l page man if they think uh we're repping howard now they better wait till january they better wait man my tickets are bought covid be damned i will be in attendance <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dr. Miller, thank that you. Re- that recount better be done. Oh, by yeah. Go, go, go help him recount. <laughs> exactly. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for uh, joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.